Hi. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you all for coming today to this panel. Um, my name is Eric Brown. I work here at the Institute. I'm very happy to convene this panel. We have guests who have traveled as far away as Pennsylvania and <laughs> Turkey and Uzbekistan and Japan in recent weeks, and I'm really delighted to have all of them here. I've learned a lot from their scholarship and from their work over the years about a very important part of the world um, and a very important set of issues, and that, of course, is the situation in Xinjiang today. Uh, Xinjiang, as all of you are aware, is known to its local indigenous Muslim Uyghur population as East Turkestan. For a brief spell, uh, East Turkestan enjoyed, enjoyed a period of relative autonomy and independence along with China after both countries were freed from the Manchu Empire with the abdication of the Manchu uh, emperor in 1912. Um, uh, and uh, the PLA uh, in 1949 in the newly formed People's Republic of China uh, more or less launched its first uh, foreign expeditionary operation uh, to reincorporate Xinjiang into a new Chinese-based empire in 1949. Since then, um, uh, the indigenous Muslim Uyghurs of Xinjiang have long suffered under the uh, rule of the Chinese Communist Party, and the region has been plagued by communal violence between Uyghurs and Han Chinese who have migrated there in large numbers. Specifically since 9-11, the PRC has dramatically ramped up its security presence in the region on the pretext of combating international terrorism. Some Uyghurs have joined Islamist terror groups, which we'll speak about today. And some attacks on Chinese civilians have occurred, including in Kunming, in Urumqi, in Tiananmen, and other places, although information about these attacks has been carefully suppressed or controlled by the ruling Communist Party in China. In recent months, actually in recent years, this repression has only intensified with Beijing seizing passports and implementing enormously intrusive uh, uh, surveillance regime on the local population. It has been reported that hundreds of Uyghurs have been extrajudicially abducted, tortured, and even killed. Beijing has recently banned Uyghur men from having long beards. Women, women are not allowed to wear veils in public. Children are uh, not attend, allowed to attend any schools other than government schools. And people uh, have been banned from refusing to watch state television. This in addition to stories about uh, uh, restaurant owners being forced to sell food during Ramadan, uh, also forced to sell alcohol and cigarettes. Uh, this bad situation uh, now appears to get much worse for both Uyghurs as well as for innocent Chinese that have been caught up in this. With the launch of the PRC Silk Road Belt Initiative, Xinjiang appears set to reprise its historic role as the crossroads of Eurasia. And the Chinese Communist Party, as we know, has mobilized enormous sums of capital and staked its own prestige on the success of this strategic gambit. At the same time, predatory groups like Islamic State and whatever comes after that has, as we know, shown a real knack for insinuating itself into these kinds of conflicts. And there is evidence this is, in fact, happening today. So to discuss this uh, complex, extremely complex situation, uh, and what it means both for China and for the Uyghurs of Xinjiang, 
uh, and also for us here in the United States, where our policy and our discussion on this issue has been uh, tragically muddled since 9-11. Uh, we have three really uh, great scholars and experts. Uh, to my left, uh, our first speaker will be Dr. Kilich Kanat, who's based at the Pennsylvania State University in, in Erie, uh, and is also still affiliated, I believe, with the SETA think tank, uh, uh, Turkish think tank, uh, with an operation here in Washington. Uh, after that, we'll have Dr. Sean Roberts, who's a uh, professor at the George Washington University, who works on development studies as well as the greater Central Asian region. And finally, we will have uh, uh, Dr. Jian Li Yang. Uh, Jian Li uh, is the president of Initiatives for China, uh, which is an extremely important initiative uh, which uh, uh, deserves a lot more attention uh, from uh, not just Washington but around the world is looking at civil society-based uh, uh, efforts to improve governance and to improve the human rights situation uh, uh, throughout China and, of course, also among the societies which are peripheral to China proper. So with that, uh, thank you all again for coming, and I'd like to begin with Kilich, please. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for having us today. Uh, we made a division of labor, so I will just start with uh, uh, basically overview of what's happening in the region since 1990s and how the, uh, the status of the question and status of the region transformed in the last uh, three decades. So in, in the immediate aftermath of uh, the end of the Cold War, we started to see that there's an increasing concern in China about a question of balkanization and possible ethnic separatism in the region, and most of the discourse in 1990s focused on uh, separatists and uh, people who are trying to divide the homeland of Chinese people, etc. So uh, what we see is there was an increasing number of social unrest in the region, riots, political demonstrations, etc. However, it wasn't something that China should concern at that point. However, the sudden dissolution of the Soviet Union and the emergence of independent republics in Central Asia started this concern in China. And in order to fix this problem, China had a lot of opportunities at that time, actually, if, it, uh, if the question was handled rightfully. However, China started two different programs, and both programs actually backfired. The economic development was considered as a way to keep the region integrated to China. However, what we see is the economic development programs backfired because most of the time it disadvantaged Uyghurs. The Han migration to the region created resentment among the Uyghur society. And in each and every social economic indices, including infant mortality rate, maternal mortality rate, youth unemployment, and economic inequality, Uyghurs become more disadvantaged in this uh, in these years compared to Han Chinese in the region. Second uh, plan of China was to keep the region uh, away from any kind of unrest, increasing suppression, especially the religious suppression in the region. The strike hard campaigns and the fight against the three evil forces basically created more ethnic resentment and alienated Uyghurs from the Chinese state further. So in 19, starting from late 1990s, we started to see the regionalization of the problem that China started to be really concerned about the situation and spread of the situation to Central Asia. 
and started to work with Central Asian governments to create something like Beijing Consensus, the uh, more uh, primary level of Beijing Consensus, and try to suppress the Uyghur activity in Central Asia, but at the same time try to get the support of these countries at the border of uh, the region to cooperate with uh, China to suppress most of the diaspora activity in these countries. And with 9-11, this situation totally changed. Up until that point, we started to see some, in the language of the Chinese government, we started to see some idea of terrorism, but the definition of terrorism, even at that time, was really broad that included any kind of social unrest, riots, or political protest. But after 9-11, we started to see that China started to use 9-11 as an opportunity, basically, to uh, handle the issue internationally as well. Because after, especially after 1997, the Gulja incidents, that's the first time that the region become, uh, came under the international lens and people started to talk about the region. And immediately after 9-11, China uh, declared multiple different reports and each and every report, the first one was the East Turkestani forces cannot get away with impunity, started to list names, started to demonstrate that China is also a victim of international terrorism. Up until that point, these, uh, these, most of these attacks that uh, the independent scholars couldn't verify some of them and didn't uh, consider some of them as terrorism in the sense of the definition of terrorism as a violent political act against the civilians by non-state actors. Immediately after 9-11, uh, when this campaign started, actually, it created further grievances, further problems in the region. So the goal of China was basically to handle this issue, and this was something contradictory against its main foreign policy goal of peaceful rise of China. However, uh, by following this policy, China attempted to handle the issue in the framework of the war against terrorism. This significantly transformed the conflict. Up until that point, there was ethnic, uh, there was resentment against the Chinese state, but this was something like ethnic conflict to et et ethnic, ethnic group against the state uh, dynamic. But immediately after 9-11, with the increasing campaign of China, both internationally and domestically, we started to see that a, a symptom of increasing criminalization of an ethnic group within China. So in 2009, when we approached the Urumqi incident, we started to see that the problem transformed into more of an ethnic conflict, real ethnic conflict, and ethnic uh, resentment against another ethnic group. And this created a strategic pit for China at the end of the day, because what we see is there was increasing riots, increasing protests, but at the same time, increasing use of violence by the Chinese state to suppress this, and increasing amount of uh, propaganda campaigns, basically, to call these incidents as uh, terrorist incidents. I don't know how many minutes I have. You have some time. Okay. This was basically a transformation of the conflict as well. The transformation was this is uh, this basically overlaps with the transformation of China at the same time transformation of international system. So once the region was considered as a buffer zone historically, then it immediately after 9-11, uh, Cold War 
it was it started to be considered as the the most vulnerable region in China. But after 9/11, with the transformation of the international system, we started to see that the region was getting more importance for China geopolitically. So once it was the most vulnerable region, now it started to be considered as a springboard for influence in Central Asia. And part of this was basically the increasing the Asia pivot policy of the United States, the concern about the uh, Japanese uh, activities and Japanese policies, concern about a Russia that is unpredictable. All of these things created a March West policy for China. And in this policy, the region basically become the a springboard. So most of the strategic analysts who were making a statement about the future of Chinese foreign policy was considering the region as a possible springboard that China can now exert its influence and project its power, not only political power, economic power, demographic power, and military power towards Central Asia, towards Middle East, and it would be an important region for the energy security of China in the long run. However, again, the, the two policies that were followed in 1990s repeated. So another economic development policy still brings a disadvantaged position for Uyghurs, and at the same time in increasing suppression of rights and freedoms of Uyghurs, especially the, what Eric mentioned, the religious freedoms of Uyghurs in, in the region. At the end of the day, it created an increasing marginalization of the Uyghur society, especially a subset of the society that started to get more radical in, uh, in its actions. And as a result of this, today we are in a position that it becomes a geopolitical issue, but it is China itself finds find itself in a strategic pit that it cannot resolve the problem. So a couple sentences only about the, what needs to be done about the resolution. The first thing is, of course, China needs to recognize at certain point that there is a problem. So far, most of the concerns of the Uyghur people, and especially after 2015 anti-terrorism laws, regulations of China, we started to see that the advocacy also started to be considered within the framework of terrorism. And that is something it can be spilled over in any kind of political activism or dissent activity in China and abroad. So the first step would be to recognition of the problem that there is an ethnic group and regardless of how you are propagating what you are doing, that ethnic group feels disadvantaged, feels alienated from the state and the society at the same time. Secondly, to control the increasing ethnic hatred, the criminalization of an ethnic group and create a suspect community under the framework of terrorism basically generates a significant problem between two ethnic groups. So in start, what started in 2009 is a very dangerous momentum that needs to be stopped. A fight between the Han Chinese and Uyghurs is basically a recipe for disaster in the long run. Regardless of how powerful is China, how uh, important China will get strategically and geopolitically, this will be a huge destabilizer for China in the long run. And the third, we see that uh, recently we started to see increasing upsurge actually in the violent demonstrations and attacks. And most of the media coverage in the region usually takes place after an incidence of violence takes place. 
And as Eric mentioned, we don't have much information about what happens because most of the time the information from the region is suppressed and there is not access for uh, independent journalists to see and researchers to see what happened in the region. And in the long run, in order to stop that, the best partner of China will be the Uyghurs themselves. So an agreement, a, basically a consensus and a recognition of the problems and taking several steps. Because from what the uh, Chinese government did in the last 30 years, the threshold is really low. And small steps in, uh, to reform the policy, the ethnic policy, will make big differences in the short and medium run. In the long run, there should be a meaningful conversation between the Uyghurs who can represent the Uyghur community in different parts of the world, including the region with the Chinese government, that can change the dynamic in the region. Splendid. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Roberts. All right. Thank you. Um, well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill down more on um, some of the events that have transpired since 9-11, um, because I really see this moment and the manipulation of the war on terror by the Chinese state as uh, a watershed in the relations between Uyghurs and the PRC. Uh, and, and they're really, I, I think those events tell us a lot about where we are right now. Um, as Eric noted, uh, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, or XUAR, as I'll refer to it from here on in, um, is, has become a virtual security state. Um, Uyghurs' communications are constantly monitored, and their cell phones' content is regularly checked via random searches on the street. All travel of Uyghurs, both inside and outside of the country, is regulated, and unsanctioned gatherings for virtually any purpose in the region are prohibited. Recent steps have even been taken to allow authorities to monitor the location of all vehicles in the region via GPS. Uh, outward expressions of relig religiosity among Uyghurs are cause for constant surveillance and even house arrest. Uh, and additionally, such, si such signs of religiosity are frequently punishable by law in the region as indications of extremism. There is virtually no pol public political discourse that deviates from the policies of the PRC's Communist Party among Uyghurs. And uh, the arrest of alleged Uyghur extremists and terrorists is a daily occurrence. Uh, the situation is grim indeed. Uh, and that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that simultaneously, uh, over the last few years, what we, we're witnessing for the first time since the 1940s, what appears to be an organized group of Uyghur militants with foreign backing, albeit not in China yet, but in Syria. Um, and I think that a lot of the policies that have been undertaken since 9-11 have contributed both to the intense security situation in the XUAR and the resultant um, outcome of, of uh, this new militant group. Um, so um, I think it's important to go back to September 11th. Uh, Kilich already mentioned that very shortly after the 9-11 attacks in the US, uh, the Chinese government began a new discourse about Uyghur descent. And uh, part of this was issuing several documents that justified its assertion that it faced a serious Uyghur terrorist threat with uh, ties to international jihadist groups. Um, 
And these documents essentially compiled every instance of violence and public unrest in the ex-UAR since the early 1990s, portraying them as carefully planned terrorist attacks. And precisely attacks that were masterminded by Uyghurs abroad and suggesting these Uyghurs abroad, all of them, which include many human rights activists in the West, that they were connected to Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. When this happened, it was difficult to fully dismiss everything that was said in these documents because there was a general lack of public information about various attacks. And people weren't sure about some of the Uyghur groups that may have developed in recent years. But certainly, a lot was apparent in them that was false. One being the inclusion of virtually every Uyghur activist around the world in a large terrorist conspiracy. Another being that lots of the events described as terrorist attacks were very obviously not terrorist attacks. They were demonstrations that had spiraled out of control. They were spontaneous acts of violence and so on. And even those that could have been terrorist attacks, it was very easy to look at them and come up with alternative explanations. So it wasn't really clear that this was a legitimate concern or not. Nonetheless, in the context of the global war on terror, the accusations that Uyghurs, like other disenfranchised Muslim groups, had joined the global jihad in large numbers initially sounded plausible, particularly to those who weren't experts in this region. And this assertion was also aided by the fact that a small number of Uyghurs were training in Afghanistan at the time of the September 11th attacks, albeit with quite tenuous connections to al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Despite the questionable nature of the PRC's claims about a Uyghur terrorist threat at the time, both the U.S. and the United Nations recognized at least one Uyghur militant group as a terrorist organization, which lent some credibility to China's claims. In general, this branding of Uyghurs as terrorists accomplished two things for the Chinese government. First, it created a narrative that could dismiss all local discontent in the ex-UAR as being fueled by external forces and extremist ideology. So there was no reason to be concerned about Uyghur grievances. Secondly, it allowed the state to further suppress Uyghurs with impunity in the name of counterterrorism. As a result, during the first decade of the war on terror, Uyghurs faced substantial repression in the name of counterterrorism, especially among the more religious members of the ethnic group. Surveillance of Uyghurs increased, and hundreds were imprisoned on charges of terrorism and or extremism. Although the extent of suppression of Uyghurs during the first decade of the 2000s held in comparison to the situation today, it was also accompanied by other stresses on the relationship between Uyghurs and the state. And some of these Kilich mentioned, and I think I'll just reiterate, most notably the PRC was undertaking a massive development effort in the ex-UAR. And development is often thought of as a positive thing, but as I tell my students in development studies, it's not always positive for everybody concerned. And for the Uyghurs, there were several issues with the development ongoing in the ex-UAR that were 
probably not um, very positive developments. First, as Kilich also mentioned, there was a rapid increase of Han migrants entering the region. And also there was significant displacement of many Uyghur traditional communities from their homes and neighborhoods. Um, and also the PRC combined this development with measures to encourage Uyghurs to become loyal subjects of the Chinese state. It mandated Mandarin as the primary language of education and it offered Uyghurs uh, opportunities to study and work in the interior of China. And while some Uyghurs welcomed these new opportunities, others saw them as an attempt to assimilate their people to a Han-dominated PRC culture. Uh, the tensions arising from the combination of a repressive counterterrorism policy, rapid development, assimilation policies, and the influx of Han to the XUAR finally erupted into vicious ethnic riots in the region's capital city of Urumqi in the summer of 2009. Um, now, I think these, ri these riots were another watershed in the situation between the Uyghurs and the PRC, and not only for the reasons that Kilich mentions. Um, the, the riots were likely the worst ethnic riots in the history of the PRC. Um, and as Kilich mentioned, it, it pitted Uyghurs against Han Chinese in bloody street battles that spiraled out of control for two days. Um, but I think even more important than the content of the, what happened during the riots is what happened afterwards. The PRC's response was to intensify its counterterrorism policies and to accelerate development in the region, both of which inevitably made the situation worse. In the aftermath of the 2009 riots, hundreds of Uyghurs nearly disappeared, uh, likely either indefinitely detained or liquidated by security forces, which were on a witch hunt for people to blame for the violence. Those who remain accounted for were subjected to an even more draconian regime of surveillance and repression. Uh, it was the increasingly oppressive policies implemented in the aftermath of these riots that in initiated the recent emergence of Uyghur militancy, uh, albeit in a, in a somewhat roundabout way. Um, what we see is almost immediately after these riots, uh, many Uyghurs started to uh, show up in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and these reports started in 2009 when Cambodia extradited 20 Uyghurs it found without doc documentation in the country. In sub subsequent years, uh, there are extraditions of Uyghurs under similar circumstances from Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand, suggesting that this was a larger phenomenon. Uh, what, is, what is obvious um, in more recent years is that there has been a, a significant migration going through uh, Southeast Asia, facilitated by human traffickers inside China. Uh, and these are uh, Uyghurs who, for the most part, are, are trying to get to Turkey. Um, it's also uh, interesting because in the 1990s, if Uyghurs were trying to leave China going through Central Asia, um, some of the agreements with the Central Asian states and the PRC have made that untenable, and what we see is that now they're using Southeast Asia. Um, the, the route through Southeast, Southeast Asia is uh, extremely difficult, and it takes a long time. And uh, in that process, either in that process or on arrival in Turkey, um, substantial numbers of Uyghurs have uh, begun to join extremist groups, um, mostly fire fighting in Syria. 
Um, and most of them have ended up um, fighting for uh, a Uyghur battalion called the Turkestan Islamic Party um, within the Al-Qaeda-supported umbrella organization formerly known as Al-Nusra. Uh, having last summer interviewed a group of Uyghurs who fled China via Southeast Asia to Turkey, one of whom had fought in Syria, I found substantial commonalities in their profiles. They tend to be from rural areas of the XUAR, are very religious, and most have spent time in prison under suspicion of being over, overly religious, or in the parlance of the PRC, extremists. Uh, the one who had fought in Syria added that most Uyghurs fighting there were undertaking the opportunity in order to get combat experience they could later bring back to China to fight for independence in the XUAR. Uh, although there does not exist any reliable um, numbers for the, num for the number of Uyghurs fighting in Syria, we do know that um, they have come with their families, um, likely because they hadn't initially, when they left China, hadn't initially planned on going to Syria, but uh, subsequently along the way, um, that's where they found themselves. Um, and uh, in Syria, uh, they've proven themselves to be relying, a reliable fighting force. Uh, they've even gotten um, praise from uh, the top leadership of Al-Qaeda. Um, and furthermore, as an attack carried out against the Chinese embassy in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan last summer, uh, that was attributed to a Uyghur who had fought in Syria suggests, this fighting force has the potential to pose a real threat to China, albeit 15 years after the PRC began exaggerating the threat it faced from Uyghurs. Uh, these developments have also occurred at the same time that evidence has emerged of increased militancy carried out by Uyghurs who have remained in China. Uh, increasingly since 2013, the violent incidents involving Uyghurs inside China appear to be more premeditated and politically motivated. While it is still questionable whether uh, they can be characterized as terrorist attacks, um, partly because that depends on one's definition of terrorism, many of them certainly appear to reflect politically motiv motivated militancy, and um, certainly much more than uh, during the, the first decade of the 2000s or during the 1990s. Um, predictably, China is responding to this new threat by further clamping down on its own Uyghur population, a strategy that is likely to only escalate uh, what looks to be an impending conflict between Uyghurs and the state. Um, and uh, in conclusion, I just would like to note that the situation in the XUAR facilitated by Ch China's manipulation of the global war on terror is uh, presently extremely dangerous. It appears to be on a crash course towards an eventual insurgency within China that will not only be de destabilizing for the PRC, but also for the region of Central Asia at a time when stability in this region is already fragile given the number of Central Asian fighters in Syria and the tenuous situation in Afghanistan. And as Xi Jinping's signature One Belt, One Road initiative extends China's presence in Central and South Asia using the XUAR as an anchor, conflict in the XUAR will have regional impact and could combine with other security risks to create substantial instability. 
The answer to the situation is not to implement a more forceful counterterrorism campaign inside China. In fact, what I've tried to show in my remarks is this is essentially what has facilitated the situation. Rather, China needs to initiate a more conciliatory engagement policy with Uyghurs. This would include recognizing the special place of Uyghurs in the XUAR and honoring this population's right to have substantial voice in the region's development and governance. Furthermore, these are things for which Western states, including the United States, should push with the People's Republic of China, not only because the present situation poses a regional and perhaps global security threat, but also because the problem's roots are in the U.S.-initiated war on terror, which suggests at least some complicity on our part for the present plight of Uyghurs in China. Thank you. Thank you. Chen Li. I wanted to talk about the case of Ilham Taqdi. Professor Ilham Taqdi is a moderate. He's everything but extremist, but he received the most severe persecution by the Chinese government. Why? I hope this case can provide a special angle through which we will be able to see better the policy, the mentality of the Chinese government underlying its policy against Uyghurs. The title, my opening remarks, is Does the Chinese government want moderate Uyghurs? Ilham Taqdi in perspective. Very briefly about Ilham Taqdi. He is one of the Uyghur elite educated in interior, so-called interior China. He was born in 1969. He was selected to study in Beijing when he was 16. The Chinese government has maintained a long-standing ethnic policy since the founding of the People's Republic. It selects the brightest ethnic youth and bring them to study in colleges in Beijing or other cities in interior China. With better education, they eventually become the elite of their ethnic groups. Many become party cadres. Others become writers and others university faculty or successful businessmen. This policy is a very useful strategy to co-opt the ethnic elite to be part of the communist ruling structure and to further assimilate the whole population of the ethnic groups. Ilham Taqdi studied economics and eventually became a professor at Minsu University, also known as University of Nationalities in Beijing. He is an expert in Xinjiang studies and Central Asia studies, including geopolitics, culture, economic development, and religion. In recent years, he focused his research on economic, religious, and political rights of the Uyghurs and the increasingly difficult relationship with Han Chinese who have migrated 
in large numbers to Xinjiang over the last six decades. He is interested in the technicalities of governing a multi-ethnic society where groups coexisted peacefully, enjoying equal rights while preserving their cultural identity. He studied many cases of success and failures in many countries, including in Europe. Not surprisingly, through his research, he saw that his ideals of a peaceful ethnic coexistence and good governance would require values and institutions that are rejected by the Chinese government. His research inevitably led to criticism of the Chinese government's ethnic policies. In his writings, he analyzed the problems in Xinjiang and made policy recommendations that, as far as we can see, have fallen on deaf ears. Ilham Tokti evoked the ire of the government from the very beginning of his teaching career. In 1994, while he was teaching in Beijing, uh, he was tracked down and threatened by domestic security police for the first time for questioning the truthfulness of some official data in the paper he had written. Over the years, he has been alternately barred from publishing and teaching, from traveling back to Xinjiang, and from traveling overseas. He was videotaped when he taught, and the government sent manders to sit in his classes. He had been subjected to short detentions and house arrest. Idiham set up a website, Uyghur Online, in 2006. It was a Chinese-language website that posted news, commentaries, um, and discussions about what was happening in Xinjiang and to Uyghurs and other ethnic groups that the mainstream Han Chinese did not pay attention to or hardly knew. Idiham Tokti believes in the power of communication, dialogue. He said, the confront confronting differences is not dangerous, but silent suspicion and hatred are. The site was repeatedly hacked or ordered to shut down. In January 15, 2014, he was arrested, and later that year in September, sentenced to life in prison. Ilham was charged with separatism, also called splitting the country. Despite his well-known insistence on peaceful ethnic coexistence, by any standard, Ilham Tokti was a moderate. To the extent that many pro-independence Uyghur activists consider him as betraying his own people. Then the question is, why did Chinese government punish him so, so harshly? He's the only person since China's opening up more than three decades ago, 
who has been sentenced to life in prison for merely his ideas and expression. By comparison, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate Liu Xiaobo, a Han Chinese, was sentenced to 11 years in prison for drafting and circulating Charter 08, a blueprint for democratic transformation in China. The answer is very dark. It is because he's a Uyghur and a Uyghur moderate or moderate Uyghur. Let me elaborate. Relations between Uyghurs and the government and between Uyghurs and Chinese Chinese have been deteriorating steadily since the late 1990s. My fellow panelists have described, you know, uh, the, the 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 causes behind it. China has seized on the international campaign against the terrorism and exploited through disinformation and distort. Distortion for the brutal suppression of the culture and the religious identity of Uyghurs. Uyghurs are living in unprecedented fear. They have been subjected to arbitrary detention. They are given long imprisonment for everyday scuffles or any number of minor offenses. Discrimination against them is written in policy announcements across China. Any violent events. Are quickly labeled terrorist attacks, while similar acts by Han Chinese are described in non-politicized terms. The common scenario in Xinjiang has been peaceful Uyghur protests about political and cultural suppression. Chinese security forces forcefully put down the protest, and injuries escalate into larger violent conflicts. These are reported to the Western media by Beijing as troops necessarily suppressing Uyghur terrorist violence. For this, from time to time, the Chinese government receives criticism from international rights groups, the foreign media, and governments. In order to dampen the criticism and convince the international community and its own people. Of the necessity of its harsh anti-Uyghur terror policy and practice, the Chinese government feels it must make the premise underlying the policy self-fulfilled. Namely, it must eliminate those moderate voices so that it can claim no moderate Uyghurs exist and they are all extremists and terrorists. So the Chinese government makes an example out of most moderate Uyghurs who have focused on the most modest, non-confrontational approaches to Uyghur identity and culture, consistent with China's constitutional provision about the rights of ethnic and religious minorities. China's strategy apparently is that. By harshly punishing even the most moderate Uyghur spokesmen, who seek reasonable accommodation with the authorities in Beijing, the government can provoke a more militant response from Uyghur community at large, 
and thereby justify even more violent and comprehensive repression. Unfortunately, the punishment of Professor Yoham Tahti became the most shocking example of that policy, that strategy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If I might,、uh, certainly in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there was some evidence of more discussion in party-connected think tanks and elsewhere in China on exploring and reviving some of the more humane traditions of governance in China,、um, and a lot of people were focused on the intractable and very unfortunate situation in Xinjiang at the time and in other places like Shizhong, Tibet, and, and、uh, other places in China.、Uh, and yet, since 2008. With the arrest of Liu Xiaobo and others, we've seen a very consistent policy on the part of the Communist Party to repress some of these voices for state subversion, among other things. Can you give us a sense, Jian Li, perhaps, about how you think the party itself might be discussing these issues now,、uh, after all of these years of Xi Jinping's rule,、um, and whether there's any space within the party? Uh, for more enlightened governance and trying to attempt to, as Kilich put it,、uh, dig China out of this hole in Xinjiang.、Uh, quite unfortunately, we don't see any sign of that in the Xi Jinping's administration.、Um, in the past three decades, the communist regime in Beijing has relied on two sources of legitimacy to continue. Its root to this day, after Tiananmen Square massacre, number one, fast economic growth; the other one is nationalism. So now, with the economic downturn, so the first resource resource source of legitimacy is in question. So we would see China, the Chinese government, will increasingly use the second source of legitimacy. To solidify its rule in China, so that is why we see the recent、uh, bellicose behavior of China with、um, maritime t-、uh, territory claims, you know, against、uh, neighboring countries, and that can easily turn inside, because they never consider Uyghurs or Tibetans or Mongolians as their own. So the nationalism is Han nationalism. They can use that、uh, to mobilize the Han people, which is a ninety-two percent population in China, behind it to continue its rule. So my prediction is the uh, uh, repressive policy against these Uyghurs,、uh, uh, these ethnic groups, will become even more severe in years to come. Thank you. Thank you. And a quick question for Sean:、um, Can you elaborate a little bit about? The various aspects of PRC's development practices and policies in Xinjiang, which are contributing to the sense of alienation and displacement that we're seeing in the region, and can you also、uh, perhaps elaborate a little bit about what you think those practices in Xinjiang might portend for PRC's efforts in Pakistan and and in Central Asia and elsewhere as it attempts to realize、uh, its vision for the new Silk Road in the 21st century? Okay. Yeah. The、um, 
The state development in Xinjiang is, is very much top-down driven. Um, uh, I've in the past kind of called it retro development because it's very founded in kind of 1960s ideas of modernization, building up infrastructure, um, bringing in external parties to build that infrastructure. Uh, so it very much has, it has very little to do with um, what's happening on the ground and with grassroots populations, communities, and so on. Additionally, uh, the strategy for the development of the region um, is, I think, quite important. Um, it, it started long before Xi Jinping announced this idea of uh, one belt, one road. Um, but those who were kind of following developments in Xinjiang saw that um, really the one belt, one road strategy had uh, long been a part of Chinese policy towards Central Asia in particular. Um, the, the plan um, is to build up uh, several centers uh, as commercial hubs um, that will facilitate trade and, and finance uh, between China, Central Asia, uh, and South Asia. And the, the two main hubs are um, Kashgar, uh, which is a traditional, uh, long seen as kind of the, the seat of traditional Uyghur culture in the south of the XUAR. And then in the north, um, an area uh, on the border with Kazakhstan called Horgus. But um, actually it also, by extension, really goes from there to Urumqi. Um, so you have, you really have Urumqi and Kashgar is, is driving forces of um, China's uh, plans to expand its economic reach into Central and, and South Asia. And you see all of the roads, pipelines, et cetera, being built in Obor um, going to those two centers. Uh, so one of the significant problems that creates for Uyghurs um, one in particular um, in Kashgar is it led to essentially the destruction of the traditional old town of the city, uh, which received a lot of international attention. Um, it's been rebuilt in kind of a Disneyland format of what was there before, but also complete with you know full-time surveillance cameras and, and so on. Um, uh, so you know. What we're seeing, I, I guess, in development in, in Xinjiang is very much um, a type of development that uh, doesn't engage the local population as planned from outside and delivered top down. Um, and there's very little consideration of its impact on the local population. And it, it just assumes that if it creates more economic growth, then that, of course, will make everybody more happy. But that's a somewhat of an outdated concept. Um, and then your other question? Uh, what does this portend for PRC's practices in other ah, countries? Yeah. In a way, we've seen an internationalization of the Bing Tuan, I think, but yeah. that's arguable. Yeah, um, yeah, there is, uh, you know, now we're seeing in terms of One Belt, One Roads, um, initial steps in Pakistan um, uh, and somewhat in Tajikistan. Um, we're seeing a similar approach, uh, but it, it's really similar to a lot of China's development efforts around the world, where they're bringing in Chinese workers to 
essentially um, build infrastructure as opposed to uh, using the local population. I think the real, the real um, issue that comes up with the One Belt, One Road <clears throat> is as you have Chinese workers coming in and building infrastructure that may be displacing local Muslim populations, particularly in a place like Pakistan, how much will that become linked to ideas about what the Chinese government um, is doing in terms of its religion policy in Xinjiang and, and how likely that might be to lead to further conflict? Thank you. Thank you. And quickly for Kilich, a uh, question about religion. I mean, there has been a real effort to terraform Xinjiang uh, economically and politically. Uh, it's been going on for quite a few decades now. But what effect has this had on Islam? in Xinjiang. Um, we know from experience, and as Jian Li had suggested, uh, you know, our best allies in the fight against various forms of radical ideas uh, are traditional scholars and others who have a real interest in protecting their faith, among other things. Uh, but what has happened uh, to sort of the status of religious institutions and, and religious knowledge in contemporary Xinjiang? Couple things. The first one, can I add something? Please. Uh, uh, what Sean said. So the, uh, there is a dilemma, f especially for the region. On the one hand, China is trying to portray the region for safe for investment. White paper in 2015 demonstrated, in, in the white paper it was said that the terrorism is almost eradicated from the region. There is nothing significantly dangerous. So this is a, a region. It is safe to invest. You are secure to come to visit. And even the statement from the spokesperson of uh, CCP, uh, once he said, this will be Dubai of Central Asia. So it is not the pa Paris of Central Asia, but Dubai of Central Asia. So uh, saying that the regime will stay, you know, like the strong, everything will be same. But in terms of richness, investment, and profitability, it would be an important region. So you, you are welcome to invest. But on the other hand, there is this increasing concern and alarmism that there is this threat, there is this terrorism threat, and uh, what's happening is this propaganda was initially in 1990s served very well for China in terms of providing the patriotism for the people. Because starting from late 1990s, Chinese government started to understand that patriotic education campaigns that it started in 1993 onwards, and increasing nationalism, boosting nationalist ideas, started to backfire, right? Especially in relation to United States and Japan. We started to see that there is an increasing anti-Japanese nationalism, increasing anti-American nationalism, especially we see the early signs of this in EP3 plane crash, right? The, uh, the, the bombing of the U.S., uh, ch accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Kosovo operation. So United uh, Chinese government started to understand that and anti-Western, anti-Japanese nationalism is dangerous for the country in terms of economic development and investment. So Chinese government started to basically use another other and consider patriotism as something against separatism, not West, something against separatism, something for ethnic unity, etc. So what we started to see in, uh, in, the, in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 uh, was signs of this. So we started to see the policies in the region, but most of the development policies that he mentioned was large infrastructure projects that really doesn't change the life of the Uyghur people. And most of them focused on resource extraction. 
So which means that basically building pipelines considered as development programs, building highways or train stations was considered as uh, development programs. So there is this uh, dilemma. On the one hand, it is safe for this investment. And on the other hand, there is still this the, the idea of uh, the terrorism and uh, danger of splitism in the region. Secondly, in terms of uh, religion, I think the, uh, when we talk about the radicalization, what we need to understand is the social economic policies and the impact of these policies to the lives of the ordinary people creates an alienated youth groups in the region. And most of these youth groups so far have been basically expressing their resentments through protest, through dissent activity, etc. But they were very limited, right? So, so far, what we see is compared to what's happening in the, on all of the, re in different parts of the region, radicalization, very limited radicalization. We don't see much radicalization because the culture of the region is, doesn't basically fit with that, those kind of radical ideas because these are the Central Asian Muslims which are mostly Sufi dominated, very traditional, right? And religion has been used not as a political goal, but most of the time religion was used as a symbolic border to stop the assimilation of the Uyghur society. So it was much more a cultural Islam in the region. So the suppression of the religion at this point to basically uh, to fight in the uh, name of fighting against terrorism, when you put all these social economic grievances, right, alienation of the certain segments of the subset of the society from the uh, Chinese state and increasing ethnic grievances and ethnic tension in the region, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And the moderate forces, moderate groups, moderate Islamic groups, and moderate Muslims in the region would be the best solution for any kind of radicalization. But what we see is increasing religious suppression, the banning, the fasting in the region, right? Or making the imams in the region to dance with the songs in the main squares. This will not help to fight against radicalization. This will basically pave the way for well, the different, different form of radicalization. And so far, it was limited. But the policies, when I say strategic pit, that's the strategic pit. When you are trying to fight against radicalism and extremism by making people more radical, yeah. more alienated from the society, more marginal, more disadvantaged, this is, in the long run, basically significantly threaten the stability of the region and stability of China. Absolutely. Okay. What I'd like to do is open this up. Um, for questions and answers for our panel. Um, uh, I'll call on you, and if you don't mind, please wait for the microphone to come around. And if you can make your comment extremely brief and your questions brief as well, we want to be mindful of everybody and give everybody an opportunity. Uh, and please also state your name and affiliation for the record. Sir, in the back. Uh, Henry Hetka, retired government. Uh, I wondered whether there's any relationship uh, to the situation with the Chinese expansionism to the West, uh, sort of a two-step tango at the moment, uh, Tibet and uh, Xinjiang. Um, if you look at uh, the 1920s, Japan had the Tanaka Memorial, and they plan an enormous amount of expansionism at the expense of all their neighbors. Uh, is there any plan like this, a secret plan, or something that uh, we're unknown? Uh, 
in the West uh, here about uh, that your experts might know about or have heard about? I wondered if there is. Uh, perhaps you can elucidate on it. Uh, I'll comment on that. Um, my sense is, is that the plan is not secret at all. It's been announced uh, with OBOR. Um, uh, and OBOR evolved out of a variety of domestic imperatives. Um, I mean, the eastern seaboard of China had sprinted ahead in terms of its economic development, uh, while the interior of the country and the western part of the country had lagged behind for decades. Um, that's a huge structural problem, particularly for a one-party uh, government um, that you know, professes to try to establish some sort of equality and egalitarianism. It was a problem for the party and for its efforts to maintain its monopoly on power. So in the 1990s, there was a lot of internal discussion about how to open up the West. And from a purely economic perspective, if you look at the Chinese export sort of uh, uh, export-led development model, they couldn't create sort of new industrial centers in the interior and the western part of the country that would then go ahead and compete with the eastern seaboard part of the eastern seaboard manufacturing centers. So the vision emerged of creating uh, new export centers on land. Uh, there would be great land ports that would reach out to Central Asia and to Europe and to the Middle East and the middle-income economies of this new Silk Road. And so that vision, which in many respects had emerged out of a lot of internal problems with the Chinese political economy, has now emerged as the 21st century strategic gambit. Uh, and tacked onto that have been a whole variety of other sort of, I think, geopolitical ambitions um, uh, uh, that extend from Pakistan straight into Central, Central Europe. Uh, now, a lot of people are sort of saying that this strategic gambit doesn't make a lot of economic sense. Um, uh, and perhaps from a Western perspective, it doesn't. Um, but from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, when you understand your primary interest is to maintain your power over China itself, uh, it, it does make a lot of economic sense and certainly a lot of strategic sense because now they've created these big land ports um, uh, and it becomes a new field for China's national rejuvenation in the 21st century and for China's strategic aggrandizement. So we're going to see a lot more of this. And uh, unfortunately, along with this great plan, uh, there hasn't been a lot of thinking about how really to improve the lives of the people in Xinjiang and in some of the neighboring countries where some of this investment is already beginning to take place. There's no evidence of that uh, from my perspective. At least. Let me add one thing. Just, um, I mean, the other, the other aspect of this is that uh, for a long time China has asserted that its engagement abroad is purely economic and has no, um, no impact on politics. Um, but of course, I mean, economics are always political. Um, so I mean, it, 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 it's it's inevitable that this is going to become more and more of a political issue, particularly in Central Asia, where you have at the same time Russia kind of assuming that Central Asia is its sphere of influence, and China increasingly um, playing a, a major role in the region. Um, so much so that Turkmenistan now is completely economically dependent on China. Um, and that immediately brings in all kinds of political issues. Do you recognize Taiwan? How do you vote on this? How do you vote on that? So, yeah. Terrific. Sir, here. 
Uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Wondering if there's any sort of self-determination axis between uh, the Uyghurs and uh, the Tibetans, or these guys operating completely apart. And second, um, there's a very substantial uh, Kazakh population just to the west of uh, Turkmenistan, indeed part of it. And it sits right on the Kazakh border. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of uh, spirit amongst that very substantial Kazakh population to join with mother Kazakhstan so that there might be uh, uh, fellow Muslims amongst two populations that really want out of China. Mm -hmm. Jim Lee, do you want to take the first crack at the first part of that question? And... Uh, OK. Uh, according to Chinese constitu China's constitution, um, uh, Xinjiang, the eastern Turkestan, is called um, Xinjiang uh, uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region, should enjoy um, um, real autonomy. Um, so, but that is not granted in practice. And um, I think this is one of the major reasons um, for, the, um, uh, for the tensions between the two peoples, and especially the Uyghurs with the government. And um, I have been working closely with um, uh, Uyghur activists. Uh, many of them are sitting in this room. They are very peaceful. Uh, they advocate for self-determination, which I fully support. But remember, not many people, Chinese, I'm Chinese, not many Chinese in China actually support that. I'm one of the very few, but the good news is the number, although small, is growing. Uh, but how fast they will grow largely depends on our effort. So I fully uh, uh, support the right of Uyghurs to self-determination. And they have their own right, uh, every right, to determine their own future. Number one. Number two, um, because of the history, and because of the you know, current situation in reality, the two people intertwined uh, to the degree that uh, we have to look at the other side of the issue, that how we achieve that, um, how we achieve that right, how we from here go to the, the place where you can enjoy the rights. I think everything you do has a lot to do what we do, Chinese. So that is why I think um, the, the, the future of Eastern Turkestan, Xinjiang, has a lot to do with the future of China. So I think uh, there, the, the, the Uyghurs movement for self-determination, for autonomy, is uh, closely related, if not a part, of the democratization movement in China. So that's why we work very closely. And uh, we try to get more people from China to we confront them with truth, a truth about history especially the current situation in Xinjiang and the, what's the root cause for the problems facing us. I think the, uh, uh, it would be very, very, very difficult, but you know, we have to do it. If we don't do it, I, I'm very pessimistic about the future. 
and bloodshed may not be prevented if we don't、uh, start today to engage dialogue between these two peoples to planning for the future based on the universal values that you know embodied in the World Declaration of Human Rights and the Charter of UN. All these important documents. John, can you take that、mm -hmm. question on Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan, yeah.、Um, so、uh, Kazakhstan, early、um, in its independence, invited essentially all Kazakhs living around the world to repatriate to Kazakhstan if they wished. And so there is a significant number of the Kazakhs within the XUAR who have、um, come to Kazakhstan.、Um, At the same time,、uh, it's it's a very nuanced、uh, issue between Uyghurs and Kazakhs in the region because historically, some of the、uh, movements to establish independent states in the region were、um, multi-ethnic and, and sort of pan-Turkic. So the 1940s、uh, had an Eastern Turkestan Republic in the north of、uh, the region, bordering on Kazakhstan, of which many of the leaders were Kazakhs. Um, as a result, the PRC for some time has has kind of tried to play the elites off of each other between Kazakhs and Uyghurs,、um, and so I think I mean it's a good question as to right now, given the turn of、uh, PRC policies in the region, to really attack Islam,、uh, whether that is impacting some of the Kazakhs living there as well. And if they're starting to、uh, wonder about the situation,、uh, just to add one last thing is the government of Kazakhstan.、Um, in the early '90s, it、uh, sort of tacitly、um, promoted the Uyghur self-determination issue,、um, and a, with, in retrospect, it seems very much to have been a, a, a diplomatic ploy to get various concessions from China. Um, but after 2000, they have categorically、um, said that you know they will not allow any sort of Uyghur political movements in Kazakhstan, which Kazakhstan has a, actually a very significant Uyghur population.、Um, so they try to step away from that issue as much as possible. Thank you. Thank you,、uh, sir, in the second row. Thank you. My name is Adam Brooks. I'm a student at George Washington University.、Uh, my question is directed toward、uh, Dr. Roberts.、Um, you mentioned that uh, the Uyghurs uh, went to Syria to fight for Al Nusra.、Uh, could you say more about why they've decided to fight for Al Qaeda in particular and not ISIL? Yeah.、Um, well, I mean, it, it's. I'll try to be as brief as possible. It's a complicated、um, constellation of things that happen. So.、Um, Initially, the organization that China targeted was called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement,、um, and my reading into that situation, trying to look through all of the sources available on it, is that this organization was essentially a, a, a very small training group in、uh, Afghanistan、uh, in the early 2000s, 2000, and then 2001,、um, that was training Uyghurs to go back. And carry out、um, insurgency in in the XUAR, 
uh, it was, you know, it was very uh, motivated by religious beliefs um, and also nationalist beliefs. But because it was more nationalist than religious, it never really got support from Al Qaeda um, or the Taliban. And in fact, they had a lot of uh, conflicts. Um, then this group, which was quite small, um, migrated into Waziristan in Pakistan and was destroyed um, by all accounts. Its leader was killed. Um, and there seems to be one, one major figure who, who survived. And at that time, that figure joined um, with Al-Qaeda and um, was a you know, kind of contributing member to Al-Qaeda's organization. He uh, then created this organization called the Turkestan Islamic Party. Um, initially, this organization seemed to be basically a shell propaganda group that produced videos, but there was very little evidence that they had a fighting force of any kind. Um, but they seemed to be supported by Al-Qaeda. And so when Al-Qaeda decided to get into Syria, um, and you know, through the Al-Nusra Front, uh, this group also joined them. And just by happenstance, you have these, these things happening with migrations through Southeast Asia to Turkey. Um, and this Turkestan Islamic Party found a, uh, a recruiting ground that they could actually begin to build a fighting force. So it's, it's kind of like this organization only really came into its own in Syria, but um, it has long been seen as the boogeyman of, um, of Uyghur terrorism for the People's Republic of China. Terrific. Uh, next question. Yeah, please. I think uh, one important point, especially uh, I, I started to see an increasing inflation in the number of the Uyghurs yeah. in the media. I even see a number of 5,000, yeah. which is uh, basically it, it doesn't match with the realities on the ground and the people who study uh, the Uyghurs in Syria demonstrated that there is so many questions so one they may not be a homogeneous group two we don't know why they went there so there are people uh, from the reports uh, from the both counterterrorism centers report and New America Foundation's report mm -hmm. we started to see that some of them just went there with families actually to live there Right? and to continue their life over there. And some of them went to fight there. And uh, what we see is from the videos that they promoted uh, in the, uh, on YouTube and other websites, we started to see that uh, they are being increasingly assimilated and they are more interested in fighting in Syria, even the ones who stay there. Right? So we see some messages about China, but we don't see much about their potential future activity in China. So uh, most of the videos that they are promoted by their headquarters basically focuses on their success, their victories on the Syria ground. So this is something, uh, you know, like the, there is alarmism, of course, you know, like the international terrorism is something important to focus on. But uh, the numbers and the uh, analysis, the alarmist analysis about that may be 
may need to be revised or may need to be studied further because we don't have much information and those numbers doesn't match with the uh, number of people that most of the uh, reports and most of the intelligence services are basically leaking to the press. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Ma'am, in the second row. Hello, my name is Chelsea Brent. I work at the U.S. Uh, State Department in the Office of International Religious Freedom, and I really thank you all for your perspectives. Um, one thing that I did want to get your thoughts on more specifically was your recommendations for U.S. policy and tr Trump administration policy in particular. Um, one thing that we always work on are cases, and I'm glad that you gave such a detailed history of Ilham Todi um, and in such intractable situations as his. He's a life sentence. You know, he's very high profile. We feel like we don't have all as much leverage or as much um, much impact on cases in that way. But So if you could just give more um, specifics about recommendations you have, either on cases or on other po policy points. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, so I think U.S. can play a very important role. Uh, uh, number one, you just mentioned, uh, always try to mention the names of prisoners of conscience in whatever meetings with the Chinese counterparts, uh, in whatever meeting. And we call for integration of the foreign policy towards China. You're going to say, oh, this is an economic meeting, uh, so it's a you know, strategic dialogue. So human rights is not a part of it. But that's wrong. And in the past uh, uh, two decades of the U.S. policy, uh, it is compartmentalization of a policies field, uh, impeding human rights against the economic uh, trade policy, impeding human rights against the uh, national security or uh, uh, global warming. All no, so so human rights become so inconvenient for every president and a state uh, secretary of state. So now. U.S. should have integrated policy. Human rights should be an integral part of the policy. So in any meeting, you should mention human rights in China, especially uh, the Uyghur uh, uh, issues in, the, in Xinjiang, where very little information that we can uh, uh, get. You should press open uh, uh, on that. And Number one. Number two, there is a law just passed last year, the Global Magnitsky Accountability Act. So I think U.S. should um, faithfully implement that law. That law apply uh, a travel ban and a freeze of asset on uh, individual uh, human rights abusers globally. So. I think the Uyghur group should come up with their own uh, uh, list of evidences. We have done already for this year's report. And we urge the Trump administration to faithfully implement that act. That will uh, uh, play a deterrence uh, to the human, uh, human rights abusers in China from doing uh, uh, most, uh, more in China. Another thing you may consider, so uh, China, as, as I mentioned in early, uh, earlier uh, in our discussion, I said economic growth is a problem in China. And China has relied on fast economic growth to continue its route to, to this day. 
So trade actually is more important for China than for any country you can imagine. So that is the issue of life and death for the regime. So you can consider this kind of policy or, 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 or law that we can target those um, uh, those business doing business in Xinjiang, for example, um, for the uh, tax credit uh, and things, you know, some kind of punishment if you do business there. And I think it's uh, possible with uh, the passing of uh, Global uh, uh, Magnitsky Accountability Act, which a lot of people uh, thought it would be impossible. So something like that we can consider. And um, I want to add a few things uh, because I just said economic uh, issues in, in Xinjiang. China, the Chinese government has long wrongly believed that the Uyghur issue is an economic issue. With economic development, the grievances of Uyghurs will be gone, will go away. So in the past few decades, there are a lot of uh, uh, work meetings on Uyghur on Xinjiang. And each time they have a decision which focused on economic development in Xinjiang, but totally ignore the ethnic issues like religion, culture, uh, uh, history. Uh, and uh, you, you know, the, the, the Uyghur people cannot even speak their language on their own land. There's a serious issue. Uh, the, with economic growth, that will not go away. And China increasingly illegalized uh, the customs practice of the religion and the culture. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just illegal everyday life. You know, we, just recent news uh, revealed that one official was demoted for refusing to smoke in front of uh, clerics. Uh, because he refused to smoke in front of uh, uh, clerics. That means, you know, he respected religion. Respecting religion can be, a, you know, something wrong. It can even be a crime. So with that situation, economic development in Xinjiang would not solve any issues like that. Number one. Number two, economic development. If you, remember, if you understand China better, you know, Let's look at the interior China, a province, my hometown, Shandong province, for example. The party chief dominated everything. So once you are the chief, party chief in that locality, the business would, you know, you will have a business kingdom there. Okay. You know, the corruption is, you know, it's beyond our imagine. Okay. In Xinjiang, politically dominated by Han, Chinese. Okay. So all the party chiefs are assumed by Chinese, Han Chinese. Therefore, they bring their relatives or friends to Xinjiang to dominate the business there. So actually, any development in that region do not benefit the Uyghur people. Uh, even worse, when you develop, you know, the natural resources, which you know they may keep until they have a freedom, but now it's all. The you know uh, dig it up and uh, transport it to the interior of China. So I think 
you know, we have to look at uh, this issue seriously. So economic development is cannot solve the uh, Uyghur issue. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that we've entered this new era of PRC-led globalization, it also stands that we need to enlarge our discussion with our Chinese counterparts and, and friends about, about human rights and stability, not just in China, but in other countries where Chinese capital and increasing Chinese involvements are now having real political effects. Uh, Kilich, you had something to say? Just, just add a few words about the possible. There are a couple of things. One, I think uh, U.S. administration needs to understand that it has vested interest in the stability of China. And part of the stability would be the uh, basically improvement of ethnic relations in the country and not through the harmony that the uh, Chinese administration has been talking about for a while, but the real conversation and dialogue and basically the rehabilitation of certain policies and improvement in the life standards of the Uyghur people. So that would be the first step. And what I say uh, about the, their life is both social, economic, and political civil rights in terms of uh, improving there. And this U.S. Has, should have a vested interest in the stability, and that should be the good point of departure. Secondly, uh, probably one of the most important things is Uyghur issue is not a counterterrorism issue only. So uh, most of the uh, dialogue has been probably uh, taking place in terms of human rights and democratization, but there is an increasing emphasis on at least China's side to consider this as only a counterterrorism issue. And the third one is... Uh, better information about what's going on in the region. That's, that has been the biggest problem so far, to find credible sources about what happened in the region. And that includes the Syria issue as well. As I mentioned, we don't have much information about this. And uh, there should be uh, more investment to get more information from the region, from the issues that relates to the Uyghur question. And that would be good for United States. That would be good for U.S.-China relations as well in the long run. Absolutely. This problem can only get worse if it remains isolated. Um, I'm really sorry to say that we're out of time, so we have one, one last question uh, right here. Uh, Dr. Kana. Sir. Yeah. Um, I just want to add a few words to uh, Dr. Roberts' uh, response to why the Uyghurs are joining, you know, prefer to join al-Nusra. So, uh, the Uyghurs, uh, of course, uh, leaving the country n not with the intention of joining any extremist group. They are leaving the country because of the Chinese government's repression. And uh, once they uh, arrive to Thailand or Turkey, then the recruiters approach them, yeah. and they, the Uyghurs don't speak you know, yeah. Arabic, they don't know the language, they don't know Turkish, they cannot speak Turkish, they cannot speak any other language than, uh, other than Uyghur. Yeah. Because they are coming from the southern part of East Turkestan, uh, most of them are farmers, most of them left China, fled China, because they, uh, the Chinese government didn't leave any room for them to breathe. Yeah. So my question is for uh, Dr. Yang Jali. So you are very well aware of the Chinese government's repressive policies in East Turkestan, which is, you know, to destroy the Uyghur culture, Uyghur language, Uyghur ethnicity, and of course eliminate the moderate Uyghur voices. 
So uh, what uh, your organization has done uh, to, you know, reach out Chinese public uh -huh. and educate them about the real situation uh, in East Turkestan? And what are you planning to do? Okay. Just for me, yes. <laughs> yeah, generally. Thank you for giving me this question. <laughs> yep, um, I try to be as brief as I can. Uh, in early 90s, uh, uh, not long after Tiananmen Square massacre, uh, we got together trying to planning, try to plan for future China. So what kind of China we want? Of course, we don't like the current China. So a, f a few scholars involved Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, in, uh, mainland China, even the international scholars. For a few months, we came up with a constitution for future China. So we proposed federation uh, and confederation for future China. For the Eastern Turkestan, Xinjiang would be federate with China, it's you know different degrees of autonomy, that kind of thing. I was very confident at that time, and I, I thought you know we found a solution, and uh, and then I began uh, the effort to dialogue with the Tibetans, and uh, the Dalai Lama saw that uh, constitution, he encouraged us. It's good, so because <laughs> you know that's a big encouragement. We continue the dialogue. A few years later, and I, I did, thought, why not include, expand the dialogue to include other ethnic groups because they are part of planning, right? They're part of China, you know, to get them involved. Then Mongolian joined. Then I tried to talk to Uyghurs, but no, none of the Uyghurs would like to talk to me. And I tried for a long time. I couldn't find anyone. And um, the Mongolian friends who had already involved with uh, you know this effort introduced me to Oma, who is sitting there, who raised the question. And I talked to him. What he after I explained to him what we want to achieve, we said we have to have a dialogue. We have to sit down together. And he said he would give a try. And so we had our first inter-ethnic leadership conference in 2000. You know, involved Tibetans, Chinese Tibetans, Uyghurs, Mongolians, people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau. All these uh, uh, ethnic regional groups that directly involved with China. Okay, a few delegates, Uyghur delegates, were on the way and heard something, then returned back to their uh, to Germany or wherever they came from, and only one showed up. I asked why. He said, you know, a lot of people are saying, a lot of our friend, you know, Uyghur friends, the Uyghur people are saying, coming to your conference means you have to recognize the constitution they had come up with. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, actually at the first conference, there's a lot of a conflict between the ethnic groups, mainly the ethnic groups with the Han Chinese group. Then I realized, no, that's the wrong approach. I should not have a predetermined position. 
on the future of the peoples involved with the dialogue. So from that on, I understood better. You know, this is not just the political designing. It's not a question of politics designing. You know, it's, it's much deeper than that. And I think dialogue that time become the main goal. So get people together to talk to each other, to promote understanding, to promote truth. And ever since then, we had uh, uh, 11 conferences. We, that's an annual event. We got involved with these groups and uh, later expanded to include religious groups, uh, Christians, um, Falun Gong practitioners. And a uh, lot of Chinese from inside China actually have come to our conference. For most of them, it was the first time to expose to such an issue. Even first time for them to meet with the Uyghurs. <laughs> In China, it's, you know, it's, not, it's, it's rarely possible for them to interact with the Uyghurs. I think that uh, this, this conference plays uh, some role in bringing people together and expand this dialogue to include more people, especially those living inside China. And many Chinese in Taiwan, they told me that's the first time actually they know where Xinjiang is, where the Tibet is. They, they just uh, uh, conceptually know, oh, there's some, uh, some place. You know. So now in, in, in Taiwan, there are a Uyghurs friendship group and uh, 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 Tibetan friendship group. So, so we will continue this kind of dialogue to include more people. As I said earlier, the number of people, the Chinese like myself, is, although small, is growing. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for our panelists. and. Uh, We'd love to reconvene at some other time.